before I even went up to the lectern, I was in tears and I just couldn't. It was it was agonising. I did not want to be defined by uh, by that, and I just wanted to get on with it. Well, but what about didn't haven't you done some of them uh, not in person? So some people might have had sneaky notes that they referred to. Maybe. Well, I'm in distinguished company, so I couldn't uh, I couldn't come without some sort of. Anyhow, yeah. Okay, so I guess the first question is, what do we need to know about how you grew up to understand who you are today? Okay, well, that's, uh, I think that question could be answered in many respects, but let me refer to my notes. <laughs> uh, I mean... Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the way in which you, you can answer, the way in which you frame your upbringing can... There's a lot of different ways in which you can answer the question, but I'll do my best to answer it. I guess, well, the most appropriate place to start was I was born in Mitcham Hospital in Melbourne, the youngest of four children, as you know. Where's Mitcham Hospital? In Mitcham. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually strange because you, Ben and Justin, were all... You were born in different hospitals, and I know this from uh, in our family living room. You know how there are those newspaper articles, and it says on this day. So basically, we have. I don't know whether they still do this, but that it was like actual newspaper headlines, and then mum and dad arranged for putting in on this day. You know, Delia Catherine Burgess was born in. Uh, oh, what? The- Oh my god, I'm so stupid. I thought it was actually... <laughs> no, we weren't actually in the newspaper. <laughs> but I think you were, I don't know, you were born in Baldwin or something, maybe, in St George's. Q. Q, okay. Uh, but it has on that, anyway. Um, but no, in any event, uh, I think we were living in Baldwin at the time, though. Uh, I'm not sure why it was... Yeah, you'd have to ask mum that. But alas, see how much we can just go into the details of these tiny little... <laughs> I just, we haven't even got past me being born yet. This, this could be a very long conversation. Uh, but no, I mean, obviously, well, uh, being born the youngest of four children, uh, uh, the, the pecking order being Ben, Justin, and then you. Uh, and, well, what's the age difference between us? About five and a half, six years. So I very much was was the baby, I guess. Um, uh, I mean, what's, what's the, well, I would say the, the big, it was a very formative experience when we moved to England for me because I was probably uh, about five or six. Uh, and I think that was quite a, I think it's something that at the time I didn't. So for context, we moved over because dad, Dad took a job here. He was working for Deutsche Bank at the time, and um, he took a job uh, as as global head of mergers and acquisitions uh, in London. And so, consequently, the whole family moved over. Uh, and I think, well, it's something I look back on now as being an incredibly formative experience. But at the time, I did find it very challenging being being so young, leaving friends and family behind in Australia. And most especially, I would say, uh, you know, being being very close to being always hanging around, you know, my 
three older siblings and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, you went off to boarding school at Headington, uh, at, uh, in, which is near Oxford here and you had some distinguished company you had rowan atkinson's daughter and uh <laughs> and uh hermione from uh what's her name emma watkin emma uh watson, watson uh in the year or two above you uh but three i digress years. three years above you right just just to know that to make sure that people don't think you're as old as her <laughs> um and then ben and justin you know went off went off all the way up to uh stonyhurst which is in which is in Lancashire, which is, I guess, about a five-hour drive out of London. Uh, so, you know, being a little... It, it was... It completely... It completely changed... I mean, you know... It completely changed my life at that point in time. Um, and, and I find, found it very challenging being, uh, you know... I guess Dad had a very full-on job, and so I was probably spending a lot more time... Uh, with mum and I yeah I really I know that whenever you came back from uh, from because you were Ben and Justin were there for the whole terms and they came back in the holidays but you came back on the weekends and I know that I used to follow you around like a bad smell on the the weekends whenever you came back Um, but yeah I mean in in retrospect I think it was it's probably uh, those are incredibly formative years. I mean, there's a Jesuit saying, give me the boy until seven and I'll give you the man. And no doubt that's, that's played a big part in who I am today. Um, but also, uh, uh, I was going to say something else with that, but I've lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, I I mean, it had its, uh, I think it, it was re- it was a really good experience, I think, from a young age to get get exposed to people from different cultures and different backgrounds. Um, it was a completely different way of living in inner city London compared to living in Australia. Because, I mean, I went to this little you you know the school that I went. Well, that's what I was going to say. Nana and Grandpa, um, God bless them, rest in peace, said to me. Uh, uh, you went over to England a little monster and you came back a little gentleman. And perhaps part of it is the school that I went to. We used to have to wear, you know, Hawkstown House, which unfortunately I think closed down uh, a year or two ago. It was this small sort of uh, from kindergarten until uh, Form 3 or something like that. Uh, but every morning we used to have to wear these little caps and we, we used to have to go and uh, the headmistress, Mrs Leslie would be waiting there at the door every morning and we used to have to take off our cap and look her in the eyes and say, uh, good morning, Mrs. Leslie. And we'd get into trouble if we didn't look her in the eye. Uh, and I thought, you know, it sounds a little bit silly uh, in some respects, but, but I think that was actually a really, uh, a really good thing to do. And I think, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know whether that instilled a bit more, respecting me for older people I, I, I don't know but but I, I looking back now I, I thought it was excellent um, and then I suppose so when I came back uh, to Australia uh, so we spent I guess two two and a half years here uh, uh, I think I was very excited to when, when I when I went back to Australia I started at Xavier College uh, which is played a huge role in my life uh and I think I couldn't wait to get to Xavier because when you know when 
being being the age gap that there was with Ben and Justin when mum and dad would drop them off to Xavier. Um, I felt like I'd kind of been almost a... I used to love like going in and seeing the teachers. I don't know whether you ever met Mr. Marham, um, but he was such a nice guy and he always gave out, uh, you know, he gave, you know, chocolates and all this kind of stuff. And um, I don't know, I felt sort of like a part of the school even before I got there and I couldn't wait to get there. And so when we moved back to Australia, um, and that was... Uh, probably uh there was a lot you know well ben had actually gone back a year earlier than the rest of the family because he started at boarding school in year 11 uh at xavier and we stayed on for a little bit longer over here and then uh i i don't have the timeline precisely correct but this is this is broadly right and then we came back everyone or you me justin and mum came back uh uh, ben had been in Australia for a little while and then dad sat on for a little bit longer to finish up his contract um, and I think that was uh, uh, I think that was a very challenging time for mum uh, because she had four kids that, that were uh, you know uh, I, I was still pretty little although I I think I was a pretty in, independent child for the, for the most part um, but uh, yeah, I think it was quite it was quite a challenging time for mum, and I think it makes me really grateful for uh, our maternal grandparents because I think they really uh, they really helped mum out, and I probably spent a lot of time around them, especially. Uh, and you know, well, this is the the next kind of very formative thing, and it's uh, I'm going to endeavour not to get emotional about it, so perhaps I'll sort of sweep over it in in as best a way as I can but um uh obviously our older brother Ben got very sick around I guess I was probably around in year four so it was about he finished uh year 12 in 2007 and then he went off into uh to do medicine in Adelaide uh the following year uh and uh I guess so at the time I was in year four and he, he had a prolonged uh, battle uh, and uh, I guess it was, I was uh, rather young so it was probably um, in some respects, uh, uh, I think it's a mysterious thing for, for anyone candidly. Um, but yeah, it was a it was certainly a difficult time, uh, and especially I think while you're, yeah, I, I don't know, I I I I don't really, um, I I struggle to speak about any of these things without just completely tearing myself apart, <laughs> uh, and as you know, I'm a pretty private person, and so I don't tend to. I don't know, perhaps it's bad in some respects, you know, maybe uh, it is a case of, I don't know, I just, I'm grateful that I have close friends and family that I can confide in with these kinds of things, but I don't, um, it's difficult to talk about. But in any event, uh, yeah, well, our, our older brother Ben died uh, uh, a month before my 13th birthday, and that was uh, extraordinarily, well, uh well, devastating. I mean, yeah, I, I was 
very close with all of my siblings growing up. And um, I think it's, yeah, it's the worst possible thing that can happen. And I think now I often think to myself, whenever, whenever I think that things are going especially bad in life, I often think that the worst thing that could possibly happen has already happened. Uh, although, you know, things can always get worse. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what else to say on that. But needless to say, it, it was... Um, yeah, I'm kind of going around in circles there. But uh, I, I, How did you make sense of it at that time? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure I did. You know, I had someone... I think I buried it. Uh, I, you know, I think I probably have a bit of a habit of doing that. Uh, in some respects, you know, this is the whole, like, there's a whole thing about, oh, we need to, like, talk more about. And sometimes, I don't know, I think it's kind of... Sorry, I'm not answering your question. I, I would say... There was a lot of support around for our family and with friends and family and stuff, but really, and I can't explain why, but my response was that I really didn't want to be defined by, uh, by I, I, I didn't want to let a family tragedy define who I was and my life. And so I had somebody recently, a guy a guy from my year level at school was actually, well, maybe it was a couple of years ago, but he's had quite a tough time. Uh, and he's, he's, his sisters sort of had a few, uh, a few issues and, and he, he had kind of a few, um, family issues going on around roughly the same time. Uh, but, but he said to me, he said, how were you always, how did you remain so optimistic and upbeat and, uh, you know, uh, you didn't, you, you wouldn't, if somebody met you and, uh, they, they didn't know what your circumstances in life were at the time, they wouldn't, uh, they, they would never guess it. And he said, me, on the other hand, I was a little shit at school. <laughs> and he said, you know, I was acting up in class and, uh, and he was like, I can see now it's probably because of all the shit that was going on, uh, in my life. And I said, look, mate, I don't know. I was, you know, <laughs> you only know as much as you do at the time. I can't explain what, what, uh, some of it's probably just personality. Some of it's, uh, I don't know, but, but I, I can certainly answer. I remember thinking I just did not want to be, uh, I did not want to be defined by, uh, by that. And I just wanted to get on with it. And I think that's really fundamentally, that's that that's the way in which I try to live my life is that I don't and I extend that to other people I mean we all inevitably we all face adversity in one way or another at, diff, at various different times in, in our life but ultimately I mean you know it's it's how you deal with it and, and it's also I think there's a proclivity for some people to really just be just <laughs> embrace that kind of victimhood narrative and that's something that I'm absolutely vehemently against because it's doing yourself no favors and it's doing society no favors if you uh, you've you've got to get the best out of yourself in whatever situation that you're in um so and yeah I, I mean I think I probably buried it 
So to, was, to be honest. was it like you didn't want people to feel sorry for you? Or? Yeah, absolutely. That, and I didn't, you know, I mean, you know, fucking, like, they tried to, yeah, the, one of the, like, school counsellors or something, like, wanted, like, had me in for a chat and they were, like, trying to, like, get, and I was just like, why am I here? Like, I don't, like, want to, it's like... But, I mean, my whole philosophy is I'd rather have... I'd much rather speak to close friends and family and, you know, thank God I'm, I'm very fortunate in that respect that I've had people that I'm able to confide in. And, uh, but, I mean, I don't just want to... Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a trust thing or something. I'm not really sure. I haven't... Uh, have you heard about this idea? I think I first heard it from Chris Williamson, who you hmm. met last week. Yeah. Um... And it kind of makes sense to me the more the more I speak to people because a lot of men seem to have this feeling that talking in a situation where usually it's with a female therapist mm. and revealing things, they, like, don't find it helpful or useful or they find it really unhelpful, whereas... Sometimes, and yeah, someone else on this podcast was saying this exact thing. Um, dealing with depression, and so the the point from Chris Williamson was from via someone else is that male and female depression is very different, and mm. because men and women are different, so it's like the and the way they're treated, it's like more focus on the female way. So it's about being loved versus being respected. So for mm. women, it's more about knowing you're loved and so I don't know I think these two ideas are connected so it's like talking it out with someone and like whatever versus being respected so for men it's more about being respected so if you're sitting in a room with a stranger who's like very different to you telling them everything and you feel like they can't relate they don't know who you are they Mm. don't know what it's like to be you it's just kind of like totally useless whereas I hear I mean, not totally useless. Obviously, there's, like, tons of nuance, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But... Depends on personality type as well. Yeah, and depends on what the specific thing is. But mm. but what I keep hearing anecdotally is men finding another p- man or person like them to talk to about things, which I think, I mean, without revealing too much, but I think you've found that. This has been helpful to talk to someone else who's similar to you and other men have said that of someone else who's like actually yeah fuck I really struggled with this I thought I was a failure or I was depressed Mm. or I dropped out of this and I Mm. and then they connect with someone else and it's but yeah somehow I feel like it links back to that respect thing because it's important it's important for men to feel to feel respected and that they respect themselves and that's kind of so again, with depression as well, it's like things like, well, yeah, the classic Jordan Peterson stuff is like about having respect for yourself, like get, you know, cleaning up your room, mm. get, you know, getting out of the house, going to the gym. Anyway. Quite possibly. Yeah. I, I haven't thought about it in, in that, in that respect. One thing I can certainly attest to is that I think it is very important for men to have other male friends. I think it's good to have both female and male friends, but certainly with, with issues like this I think it is very important to to and this is where I kind of as I alluded to you know I'm a pretty private person and I don't like 
uh, I don't know what, for want of a better term, hanging all my dirty laundry out to to dry. Um, I, I'd much rather confide in a few close people around me. Um, and and something that I think is really, I think something that the mental health industry gets, well, certain sections of the mental health industry gets acutely wrong now is this uh, this. There's kind of an attack. There's a sustained attack on, you know, you hear the term toxic masculinity thrown around. Um, I mean, not all elements of masculinity are bad, and I think that in, in trying to kind of treat both sexes the same, you're doing a massive disservice to both sexes. Uh, and I think, well, as you say, I'm not sure about the whole. You could you could be spot on with the um, respect thing. It's not something that I've thought about, so I can't comment comment on that but but certainly um it is important for men to uh have have male friends and talk about these kinds of things and also i don't know the whole uh, some people yeah i don't know you, you've got to be able to speak freely and openly and frankly you've got to have some people in your life that you can speak to like that but ultimately you, men and women are different creatures like as you've said before, what's the... I don't know where it's from, but yep. men are from Mars, women are from Venus or whatever. That's so. a book. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and it is a... You know, it's a spectrum. It's like two overlapping bell curves. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Ob- it's like and men, on average, are physically bigger than women, but not every man is bigger than every Yes, woman. yes, yes. Yeah, and we'll get ourselves into trouble, you know, talking about um, differences between uh, the two. <laughs> but um, I would say... It's, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a very vexed area, but, uh, and, you know, statistically speaking, I mean, women tend to be, I think it's more women are depressed, but more, more men suicide at a much greater rate. Um, and that's a big problem if you're, if you're kind of, so I, I think, you know, you can't have a uniform approach to, you, you almost do have to kind of treat each 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 one differently, but yeah. So then, what was what was school like for you after Benedictine? Uh, I love Xavier. I I gave my absolute best. Um, I'm very grateful for the education that I had there, and I'm incredibly grateful for. Uh, for a, a lot of the teachers that I had at a very formative time in my life, um, you know, people like Jason Slingo, who, who you've met, lovely family, the Slingos. You're going to have to send this podcast to all these teachers eventually. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, fa- Father Chris Middleton, uh, who was the, the rector uh, when I was there from year 10 to year 12. Um, something that I'm immensely grateful for is probably not just the, uh, well, it was a it was a great education, and an all round education. I would say not just in terms of academics, but also the opportunities that it gave me uh, in in terms of sport, in terms of in terms of uh, uh, drama, in, in terms of um, uh, uh, especially service. And that's something that I really took away. I think both from both from our own, both from our family values, and also from my education at Xavier. So the, I think the two fundamental messages I took away from my education at Xavier was being a man for others, and uh, 
there's a Jesuit saying striving for the margins, which effectively means striving for excellence, striving for your best, always kind of reaching for more. And I would say, in terms of that, that's something that I've definitely, uh, in our own family situation, I think um, that's something that I've really observed in Dad. I mean, I think he's crazy. He could retire right now if he wanted to, but he still works. Like, uh, he's, he's still running around like a hamster on a wheel. Um, but I, I think it's really good to, to know where you come from. And I think, um, uh, you know, Mum and Dad didn't grow up with a lot of money. Uh, uh, but they've both worked incredibly hard to give the best opportunity to their four children that they possibly could. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's quite remarkable that, that, um, our paternal grandfather, Al, was a factory worker. He was a foreman at a factory and he, he remarkably, you know, had six children and owned his own home, which is not going to happen again, I, I would say, I, I, unless something drastically changes. Um, uh, in Melbourne. In Melbourne. In Melbourne. Yes. Uh, so. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. Uh, Giving I think, everyone, I think, in terms of their values, which is education. Education, absolutely. And so you know, Dad went to a public school. Um, but, but yeah, very importantly, it's not like giving everything as in you never have to work again like I just oh yes yeah 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 no 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 very much like you need to work absolutely absolutely well well those are I think um which can make it yeah which uh, can make it hard to which can be a bit of pressure to to find your way in the world I think if you can't sorry I'm just coming off a conversation yeah with dad which is always the message like, if you're not working, it's, like, terrifying. Which I wonder if that comes from a... If it's principles, but also, like, a working-class genuine fear of... If you're not working, you... It's, like, the risk of not eating is real. But Maybe. Like, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't... Uh, I, I'm not inside his head. But certainly, I mean, look, this is... This is something that I'm... I, I've been very cognizant of and I think probably I have a habit of being very hard on myself and making myself uh, which is sometimes is maybe helpful because it helps you to push yourself but other times it's bad <laughs> but uh, as you well know uh, but I mean you know the, the reality is like we're, we're incredibly fortunate with 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 mum and dad have, have given us a, a, as good of a life as we could possibly hope for but I think with that comes and we're never going to have... We, we, Dad, they both had a, a poorer upbringing than us. But it's the way in which you frame it because, you know, we're not going to have... We're not starting from the same point in which they did. But ultimately, we can only make the best out of our situation. And I think it comes with a responsibility, quite frankly. Uh, knowing where you've come from, knowing where your family's come from, to then... You know, I mean, I, I just think it's uh, it's up to the individual. But um, I, I'll just return to your question. Um, so on the one hand, hard work. Uh, that's that's certainly something um, uh, from a family values perspective. And then also, uh, I think most, well, both mum and dad have exhibited this, but probably in different ways. Dad in a more 
well, he does give he does give a lot of time, but to uh, various different charitable boards and that kind of stuff. Um, but probably more from a philanthropic sense. Whereas Mum is, you know, an incredibly selfless person. She's she's heavily involved in different uh, volunteering work and charities and so on. And I think uh, a lot of that came from uh, our maternal grandparents, Nana and Grandpa, um, and they were always. They never really had had much money at all, but they were always going out of their way to help other people. They were always volunteering with St Vincent de Paul, heavily involved in the in the local parish, heavily involved in their family. You know, always willing to give a hand. I, you know, I, I'm so grateful to have spent so much time around them. And I think I, I used to love walking with Grandpa when he took his little Cannon Terrier uh, Mac. Uh, along uh, on a walk uh, on the bike path and every single person that we walked past didn't matter whether they looked like they weren't on for a chat at all he would say good day to them and uh i remember that from just as a being really young and just the way in which um grandpa was just such a such a friendly man he just treated everyone with respect it didn't matter who they were or where they came from um and it's that's that's really that's another thing that i i've taken away and I think probably both in the family sense but then also at Xavier having been fortunate enough to be involved in uh, various community service programs and so on and being getting involved with people from all different walks of life um, I think it, it it's 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 that Molly Meldrum quote. There's a statue. I don't know whether you've seen it, but it's outside the Corner Hotel in Richmond. Richmond's a suburb in Melbourne. Um, and uh, Molly Meldrum said his grandmother said to him once, always remember in life that no one is above you, but most importantly, no one is below you. And I think that's incredibly... Um, I, I think that, that line really underscores my values in a lot of ways. I've always had a big problem with people that, to use the expression, kiss up, kick down... You see it everywhere, uh, in every environment. Inevitably, it's part of human nature. But, but to break that down, you know, people that kind of suck up to people that think that they can get something out of, and um, if they think that uh, if they think that they're better or higher up in the social hierarchy than someone, then they treat them like shit, or they don't, uh, they don't, you know, uh, they're just not friendly to them. But I mean, you know, it's. It's uh, it's not that hard to be a nice person. It, even just, I think the small things really do make a difference. Even just here, uh, you know, the receptionist downstairs. I'm saying in postgraduate accommodation with 600 students. Um, every time I walk past whoever the receptionist is, you know, I say good day and I say how are you going, and you don't know. I think it's little things that can make a big difference. That sounds really cliche. I'm sounding like. Uh, Paul Kelly from Little Things Big Things Grow but it's true it's like just contemplate the difference it can make in your day if you're driving along someone uh, you give way to someone and they don't wave at you then a little part of you goes fuck (laughs) I've lost faith in humanity and then the inverse of that is if you give way to someone and they wave you're like oh cool (laughs) like and you don't know what sort of a day someone's had before you don't know uh this is, and it's something that I really acutely realised while in the lockdown in, in Melbourne, is that these small little interactions, which you kind of take for granted, they really do kind of compound. And and that's why I think, and you know, we all get stressed and we get, I can be an arsehole, I'm not perfect at all. 
but I try to be I try to be as nice of a person as I can. Um, but yeah, I've kind of I've just completely gone. That's what happened. And so you think that came from seeing grandpa treat people with respect, or did that come from school or? I think especially family. I think uh, especially mum's side of the family. Um, I think not. I think you know their side of the family also worked very hard as well. You know, geez, like even Nana and Grandpa were that they, they were very financially pressed at, at, at certain different times and Nana was having to work a couple of jobs and they would even took up a cleaning job at a certain point in time after grandpa was retrenched. Um, so they certainly worked very hard. But um, I, I, I tend to think that the biggest takeaway I took from the Bilston side of the family was, uh, yeah, I, I would say from grandpa and from Nana as well, although she's more more perhaps introverted than grandpa. So she wasn't as probably like, grandpa was on for a chat with anyone and everyone. <laughs> And that, well, actually, that's another funny story. This little can terrier, Mac, who I told, who I said before, if grandpa, so grandpa would always stop in the street and just be on chatting to whoever for so long. Mac developed a habit of if grandpa was talking for too long, he would urinate on grandpa. (laughs) And so then grandpa would hustle along. And he did this more than, did you know about this? It's hilarious. Yeah. So... Um, but, and certainly I think Nana and Grandpa have instilled that in mum and, uh, I mean, you know, thank, thank God for both mum and dad. I mean, God knows I I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all of their support over the years. And, you know, uh, mum will drop whatever she has at the drop of a hat to be there for anyone else in the family. Uh, uh, and, and yeah, I don't know. Big heart. Uh. So, uh, uh, and I would say, well, in some respects, I think mum and dad really are a case of opposites attract because they are, there is such a dichotomy in some respects, but they really complement one another very well. Uh, I think all marriage in the long term is probably, probably a matter of compromise, but I think they're both, they both have brilliant values. And I'm certainly really grateful for that now because I see, I see the pain that is caused in a lot of people whose parents have separated, especially when they're at a younger age, and it can be devastating. Uh, so I'm really grateful that our our parents are still together, uh, and thank God, you know, because they complement each other so well, and um, yeah. I mean, and that's not to put fault on anyone who's gone through a divorce or whatever, you know, something, sometimes things don't work out and all that, all that kind of stuff, but, uh... I'm just thinking mum and dad are going to be extremely embarrassed. Why? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay. So then did you have any idea at school, like how do, I'm interested in how you started to form your values and your view of the world and also how you ended up from that person at school to then where you are now at King... We're sitting in your room mm. at King's studying political economy. Like, mm. how did you... Yeah. What's kind of the path and how did you become... Because you're... you're I guess I'd say you're passionately interested. Absolutely, in yeah. That's fair to say. Well, it's difficult to say precisely. I mean, certainly... 
all I look, I really I love Xavier and I try to make the most of every opportunity that I got there. And I'm so grateful to, you know, I went to India with Xavier. I came over here on a cricket tour. I really gave of myself and it was probably a big part of my identity. And I think by the time I finished year 12, it was like, uh, what do I do? You know, it, it was so much. But in terms of my values underlying, I think what that drove me through all the ways, just trying to get the best out of myself, trying to striving for excellence and probably in a balanced perspective I would say I never overemphasize academics I've always tried to be a bit of an all-rounder and balanced in different ways um, and and uh, trying to kind of tr- trying to uh, yeah will be a man for others selfless service of those in most need I think probably well I, I was it was the ultimate it was the ultimate compliment to because I love Xavier so much, then to be offered um, the captaincy in my final year, it was a very, I didn't know whether I wanted to take it on because I almost didn't feel worthy. And I... I Why? Well, I don't know. I, I thought, uh, I don't know, am I, am I suited to this role? Am I... Uh, do I want to take on this burden? Do I want to be in the spotlight like this? Is there going to be an extra? I mean, candidly, as as anyone who knows me will be able to attest to, I'm not your kind of. Uh, I can be a bit of a a bit of a larrikin. Um, I'm not your, uh, uh, you know, straight tie up, socks pulled up, perfect student kind of. Uh, and so I thought in that respect, I don't know, is that going to inhibit? Uh, am I going to have to? But I think the best advice that I had was from the captain from the... And I, agree, I it was a... You were living, I think, in London at the time, but I I had to have a... I sort of had to be talked into tanking it. I, I'm, it's a no-brainer in retrospect. And ultimately, it's the greatest... It's incredibly... Uh, it was a great privilege because I really... I, I love Xavier and I'm so grateful for... So the opportunity to serve in that respect was, was, was brilliant. Um, but it is something that I that I had to kind of uh, deliberate on. And may, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff. Um, but needless to say, uh, I think I became, I got mentally exhausted in uh, year, towards the back end of year 12. There was one, uh, we had annually the feast day of St. Ignatius Loyola. And um, I think I was pretty sleep deprived. We had a whole campus mass. I don't think I've told you this before. Um, and I was sitting with two of my close mates, um, Pete and Tommy, and uh, one of them said, uh, uh, you know, this will be our last, you know, standing national stand us. And, I, uh, and it was one of the, it was sort of July and we were finishing school in well, year 12, October or something. And then, you know, I can't explain it, but I just broke down. And then uh, I, and they they got me, they said, oh, yes, but I was sitting with, with my friends and they said, oh, no, you need to sit, like, up here. And thankfully I didn't have to sit on the stage. But I was for most of the mass, I was just, you know, bawling my eyes out, uh, which is very, I mean, I don't, maybe we say that grandpa has the suki wawa gene, maybe I've got an element of it, but I try, I try to uh, repress it in as far as possible. Um, out of stress or like probably probably stress probably uh knowing that it was coming to an end 
at Xavier. It had been such a, I'd been there from year three until year 12. I'd been there for 10 years, but it felt like I'd been there for longer because Ben and Justin had been there before. Uh, and, you know, it was a, uh, at the time you were living over in, I think at that you might have still been in New York, as a matter of fact, at that stage. Justin was in London. I found it very challenging. That was That's the biggest downside of being the youngest is being the last one. I went under the went under the radar, I think, for a lot of... Because mum was always so, so busy and everything. But being the last one left at home, being in the spotlight, I did not care for that. Um, uh, but, yeah, and look, I, I really... I fell away. I mean, I had a couple of... I was a keen athlete at the time and I had a few stress fractures... I couldn't run for three months. That was kind of my outlet. Uh, and that definitely took its mental toll. And then probably, you know, uh, to back to your previous question, and to, I probably did just bury all of my, all of my, it probably came out at various points in time that I would confide in people. And I think Xavier's really quite good for that from a pastoral care perspective. But um, there was probably a whole lot of, a whole lot of things that had been bubbling below the surface. And then they, so that was it was incredibly i'm i'm sad the way in which i was crawling to the finish line at the end of year 12 it was it was it was unbelievably challenging i was uh uh for especially i think as someone that tries to be friendly and approachable to everyone to be in a mindset in which uh in which you feel as though you can't, I think it's there's a discernible difference uh, when you're not feeling yourself. And, um, yeah, I found it really challenging because I... And I felt like I was letting... Uh, I was probably letting other people down. I wanted to... Uh, yeah. So I, I'm sad for the way in which the last few months ended, but is is what it is. Um, I mean, I somehow got through it, somehow plugged through, uh, and, and then, uh, I think I was just exhausted at the end of year 12. Um, and then I, I had a gap year, uh, uh, I slowly put the pieces, uh, back together, uh, and I was, you know, I was not in a good place for, uh, quite a few months there. Um, I was, yeah. Um, uh, but I then started working at Toscano's, uh, and at the free market think tank, the IPA midway through the, through the following year and, uh, slowly, you know, you kind of, you kind of fall apart completely and then it's a case of rebuilding. Uh, and then, you know, we, yeah. yeah. And it's not linear. Rebuilding. It's not linear. No, it's certainly not. No. Because you're like, yeah, I'm doing so much better than that. It's like... Yeah. Um, it was... Yeah, and it's... Yeah. yeah. I, I, anyway, so I do. I should answer... Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it sounds like you put a whole lot of pressure on yourself to be... Just from what you were saying, it's like you were only worthy if you were doing something to help. Like you had to be serving other people or being this type of person who was warm and friendly and whatever. Mm. And if you weren't, then 
you weren't worthy or something but that's not true it's like you i'm sure all those people are like so like i'm sure you didn't let anyone down you were you that's like a volunteer thing that you did a great job at yeah well uh, yeah i I mean i i'm i said i had this kind of conversation with father middleton and i said you know i sort of said i echoed the same sentiments i said i wish i didn't you know i wish i was uh more on my game you know towards the the end of year 12 and he said you know if you you don't know uh the the difference uh that that you people might not say it to you but you made it and that really meant a lot um because it can sometimes be difficult to to measure these things and i would i I mean i gave so my school had a tradition of voluntary mass every every friday ben gave a voluntary mass uh uh back in his day and in my one uh i spoke about i spoke about ben and that was one of the most challenging things i've ever done before i even got up and so the whole idea of the voluntary mass is that you have a year 12 student and they'll talk about something, you know, one of the most challenging periods of their life. And it's quite a, I think Xavier was excellent in that respect because it's, it's a really, um, uh, I think it was a really good thing. And it's, you could hear a pin drop uh, in all of these things. And I think it really, uh, it really opens up conversations and I think it can be quite cathartic for a lot of people I'm not sure how cathartic it was for me but before I spoke I I was like before I even went up to the lectern I was in tears and I just couldn't it was it was agonizing uh yeah but for people uh and I don't really I don't know there is merits in like opening up and talking about things and I'm, at the end of it, I had so many people come up and hug me, and they would say, "You know, we've had this. Um, I haven't, I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't talked about this with anyone." But so I think it's sometimes it can really open up conversations with people. But candidly, it's not something that I would uh, I would care to do every every day because it's just too uh, mentally uh, destroying. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my point was even if you hadn't done any of these things and even if you had just told everyone to fuck off for every day that you were (laughs) captain, you would still be worthy as a person. So it's like clearly you put this kind of pressure on yourself, which is probably good in a way because that's how you achieve things. But I think it's important to know. I'm just saying because it's the exact thing that happened to me, but in a different way. It was like... I was only worthy of being on this earth if I was, like, achieving X, Y, and Z. And as soon as that fell apart, it's like, oh, well, then I should die because I have no worth. But it's like everyone has worth. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly. Uh, And I think um, it's falling into the trap of that. I am grateful on the one hand because I am an ardent believer in personal responsibility um, and, and... but the trap that you fall into, as both you and I well know, is that you can get into this kind of perfectionist mindset and, and you know, all, all the things that come along with it, like imposter syndrome and so on. And, and it's completely counterproductive because ultimately you end up being less effective because you're putting... You have this unnecessary mental baggage. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree with you there. Look, yeah, well... <laughs> So I'll, I'll go. How did I get here? We've gone. We've gone a few, a full. Well, so 
I ended up going doing my Bachelor of Arts at Melbourne University. So I majored in history, uh, did marketing as my kind of breadth track. Um, and it, I would say my BA was very, very... I, I wouldn't say during school I was especially political. I never really... Other than instinctively, uh, I would say if you were to ask me where my political beliefs come from, it's probably... I'm grateful as well with mum and dad that they never imposed on us their political views, whereas I know some families, they're kind of more overtly uh, political. I'm glad that they kind of let us work it out for ourselves. Um, I always, I don't know, instinctively though, I, I think I was always, being a student of history as well, I, I always had a, an appreciation for, for well, Western civilization and how institutions have come about. And when did you first learn about that? Uh, well, probably just in, in history, in school. I'm very lucky that I had some brilliant history teachers. Um, and there was something that made you think it's way better how we do it here versus like in communist Russia or something. No, I don't think it, I don't think while I was in school, I was thinking that, but I think I was, that was just the foundation. And I think I was really surprised when I got to university, how I still can't get my head around it candidly, how such a terrible ideology in communism is still so, you know, you go around campus, thank God, this is, I was saying this to a friend the other day. It's great that we don't have any fascists, uh, you know, uh, doing their march around campus. That's not tolerated. I think we've learned one lesson from the 20th century, which is great. That's Nazism is a terrible ideology. On the other hand, on campus, you have all of these Karl Marx posters. You have all of these, you know, the Socialist Club, Overthrow Capitalism. Uh, and I thought, what the hell is going on here? Uh, it was quite a... Um, I, I didn't... I never really... There was not that political heightened uh i'm grateful that the history education i had at school was not that politicized and i worry now from some of what i read possibly it is becoming more politicized in schools uh and candidly history is probably an undervalued discipline now i think it's incredibly important that we know our history we know our foundations we know where we come from and that it's not that just this marxist style of history in which for 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 the best way of putting it is you could break down all of human history into there being the oppressors and the oppressed. Um, I, I think that's massively overly simplistic and, and is just such a... And the other, is that taught? Uh, a lot of neo-Marxists, that's, that's where all of this like identity politics comes from. Uh, but that would be thought. more at university. At university, at university, yeah. I and would hope that it's not in schools, but it could be. I, I don't know. But... But that would have to be in some, like, esoteric kind of theory way. It wouldn't be... Because if you look at things that have happened through history, how are you going to explain, you know, like, the great leap forward? I mean, the, you know, the millions of people dying in China or... You know what they say? What? It wasn't proper communism. That's what they say. They yeah, say so that's what I mean. It's a theory verse. They're not looking at the facts of all millions of people died, or Pol Pod, or this mm. dictator. Stalin, yeah. They're just, it's some, like, super niche kind of argument. 
that um, just is found in the arts departments of I Unfortunately, universes. not just the arts departments. I think that a lot of these ideas are kind of becoming more pervasive. Um, but to return... Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you started noticing it. I, I certainly, yeah. Cause, yeah, because my experience... I went to the same uni. Yes, you, yes, right? we did science. But, but it wasn't. years before, and I was at college. But yeah, I was doing maths and engineering. I would see these free sausages or whatever. Like, if you sign this petition, <laughs> you get a free sausage. <laughs> so I was, like, aware that people are kind of talking about some stuff. But it was, like, no, like I don't know anyone else yeah. who took any interest in this stuff. I remember Margaret Thatcher died and people were like we're celebrating. celebrating. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I, I mean, this is going to make me sound so ignorant, but whatever. I was like, didn't really know who Margaret Thatcher was. Didn't really, like, it was so, it was like a vague awareness, but yeah. I was like, had no, and I was like extremely involved in my college and like sport yeah. and uni, but it's interesting. I don't know if it's, but even my friends who did arts, I don't think they, were particularly interested in this stuff. Like, they were just doing art history or whatever it was. Mm. So there must be something that triggered you maybe. to be like, what's going on here? I'm curious about this. Uh, maybe, but perhaps also, I mean, what, I guess there must have been... When did you graduate? 20... Uh, perhaps it did become more politicised in that period. It's quite possible. Um, and... Uh, Look, I mean, I think the whole... You've got to have diversity of opinion on campus. And that was my biggest problem with it, is that a lot of people... And this is this is a problem both at universities and more broadly speaking. You have these people that, if they disagree with you, that they, they're inclined towards calling anyone remotely right of centre a Nazi, which is just completely unhelpful. And this there was plenty students. of that going on. Yeah, this is students, but this also happens, you know, in... It's just so... But they lose the argument because if you're going to revert to, uh, if you can't address an argument and you're just going to say anyone that doesn't agree with me is a, is a is a fascist, it's just ridiculous and it's completely lost the meaning of the term now. I mean, Jewish people are getting called Nazis. It's crazy. Um, but I would say, being I, I was very fortunate in that I was also working at a free market think tank. Uh, and that balanced out quite nicely. One of my earliest experiences at, in my undergrad was uh, uh, we were discussing, this was a compulsory arts class on power, and we were discussing the merits of capitalism versus socialism. And uh, I said, all of that it was interesting. I would say the majority of the class were arguing in favour of socialism, but by the end of the class, nobody conceded that they would rather live in a socialist country over a capitalist country. But I said, look, anecdotally speaking, uh, from my own family situation, and in Australia, I think uh, the free market, cla uh, classical liberal sort of system, the free market, free market uh, liberal democracy has enabled social mobility. Uh, you know, and so what I was saying before, you know, our parents have been able to work hard and get ahead through, they got a good education and they worked hard. Um, that's an environment in which I want to live in, in which it doesn't sort of, there's a great, actually, this is where I can refer to my notes as well. Uh, there's a great Bob Hawke quote, a Labour Australian Prime Minister, a great larrikin, 
In Australia, there is no hierarchy of descent. There must be no privilege of origin. And I think that's something that's really underscored a lot of the success in Australia in the past and something that I'm concerned about, especially with respect to the housing market, is that a lot of young people are priced out of the housing market and I think it's turning a lot of people towards kind of socialist ideas, which is which is not going to uh, do anyone any favours. But with... Uh, uh, yeah, basically, I, I made that point and I said, look, I, I think that it, it's great because it enables social uh, enables social mobility. And this girl turned to me and she said, well, that's all well and good, but you're a white male. And I, but this was the first time I'd had somebody say that somebody that had just kind of completely pigeonholed me. Uh, and I was kind of, uh, I've had that now from that point on, I've had that many times. <laughs> But I was completely, uh, and I probably wasn't as intellectually self-confident in my undergrad. I was still, you know, I was a first-year undergrad student. I didn't know anything. I still don't know anything. But uh, I I was, I'm at least more confident in in, um, what I know and what I believe. Uh, But I was just kind of, uh, I I mean, just to break that down. So you can't, you can't. Obviously, everyone's a product of their environment and everyone has different experiences. But how do you then account for... It just completely diminishes any hard work that anyone ever does because by that implication, then everything that someone has achieved, they've just had everything handed to them because it's like, oh, it's a it's a white male. Let's just give them all this. It's like, that. that's just not how it works. Like, we should... I'd like to, excuse me, I'd like to think that we live in a meritocracy for the most part. Uh, and that's certainly a value that I think needs to be upheld. And I think a lot of these... So in Australia, in here, in this country, I think it's actually because as a class... There is, there is. There are, there... To Bob Hawke's point, and that's yeah. something that I'm really grateful for being an Australian, is that we don't have that sort of class stratification, which yeah. is, yeah... There are real there are real barriers for different groups. Different groups of people are disadvantaged and there are correlations, right, with different attributes. But Certainly. I think that whether it be race or gender or whatever it is. But I think it's missing it's not the point yeah. to divide everyone up. Absolutely, yeah. The point is, how do we... Well, I think this is what your values are. How do we make... These are what my values are. How do we make it more accessible so everyone has the equal... Equality of opportunity. Yeah. High five. (laughs) (laughs) But which... Yeah, which involves education. But... And to understand... Yeah, to understand this is the system that best serves us. Everyone has a chance... Yep. to thrive or this yep. is the most free and prosperous and peaceful yep. we can be under this yep. system but let's make sure that people aren't left behind by it and how do you yeah and that's like another problem to solve but i think the point is maybe what you saw at uni is and this is what i think we see here in the hmm. in the streets and it's alarming that people have kind of forgotten hmm. it's like why does this where would you rather live in the world? You know, these countries huh. where you can speak yeah. freely yeah. 
where we're allowed different opinions, where we're allowed to say, actually, I don't think our system's good or I don't yeah. think our government's good. You're allowed to say that freely. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to be killed by the government. You're allowed to, you know, marry whoever you want or have whatever, explore whatever, you know, stuff you want to explore. You're not going to be executed for doing drugs. You're yeah. not going to, you know, it's like... And then also to have the opportunity to innovate, to build things, the gov- to go to a supermarket, choose whatever product you want. Yeah. The government isn't telling you what you can eat or where you can live. And that's a va- so that's a value. Anyway, this is so interesting because it's like, yeah, because when I went to Slovakia, it was interesting. People who were, at, who were actually like, no, I would prefer that the government, I actually miss when we were under Soviet rule huh. because... So it's like, that's a, or, you know, people, some Chinese well, friends say, like, they like that the government controls information because they don't want protests. They're like, protests are disruptive. Huh. It's good that the peasants don't have information, you know, that kind Gosh. of stuff. But it's understanding, okay, that's values. If you want to go and live in a country where you can be executed for being gay or for being a woman and not yeah. wearing a headscarf or something, fine. But, like, this is the values of this place mm. and we like living here we like being able to vote in our leadership, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, we've all forgotten that. Yeah, I completely agree. And something that I find really sort of paradoxical in the West, and I think without getting into any of the nitty gritty, but it's quite remarkable that it seems to be, on the one hand, a lot of people that are sort of on the, you know, progressive left, for want of a better term, are... in the domestic sense, they have very socially progressive values, you know, in a, almost invariably that they'll be, uh, uh, I guess, absolutely in favour of, you know, things like gay marriage, abortion rights, all these kind of things. But then on the other hand, when it comes to other countries, they will be in support of, of certain regions that don't have the same rights for women, for other minorities like gays and, uh, and so on. I'm not sure where how they reconcile that. Like how, but I, you'd have to you you'd have to get the. But it's interesting. It's I, I'm I, I struggle to be that inconsistent in. It just it seems but, so bizarre. But that's why conversations are good, mm. and that's why. Yeah. So, like for example, me yesterday at these protests going through London. I wanted to ask this guy why he was there marching on the streets. And he said, I don't want innocent people to die. So I was like, okay, great. So how do we prevent October 7th? Or how do we, what do we do about the hostages? And he was like, because he wasn't talking about those Mm, innocent mm. people. But, and he, but then he was like, yeah, first he was like, well, tough luck. Some people have to die. But I was Mm. like, wait, but those innocent people have to die. How do you decide? And I was being you know and then we could have a conversation when he's like okay it's like what can we agree on can we because i don't want any people to die yeah i agree i think from a humanitarian perspective all of this stuff has been devastating and one of the most depressing things about the response broadly from people has been that people have drawn kind of ideological grounds and they're more likely to be one side or the other without just being able to acknowledge what's going on is a tragedy there's innocent people that are dying and somehow there's all of these kind of moral relative qualifiers. I, I find that very uh, disturbing by people that are, and candidly, like a lot of people that are nice people and good people, but it, they're, they're 
almost making excuses for but that terrible that, atrocities. But that's why conversation's important because mm. you can figure these out together. It's not like everyone's figured everything out in we are all full of inconsistencies and contradictions and we feel emotionally strong about something that doesn't make sense because it doesn't align with something else. Mm. That's just what being human is. But so conversations are always better than violence, like resolving problems through Absolutely, conversation. Yeah. Well, it, well, but that's my view. Other people might have a different view. Other people do. So it's establishing, do we agree? Because some people agree. Some people, for example, in the US, like I couldn't believe how many people think, yeah, it's okay to kill people in certain situations. Like if for self-defense and for this, and like if someone's doing this, like you can kill the person. Whereas we come from a place where it's like generally like any life, losing any life is a tragedy. And most people are not, you know, even with capital punishment, right? And stuff like that. But so anyway, it's establishing, it's just starting with the, okay, what can we both agree on? Okay, do we actually both want peace? And some people are like, no, I want justice. Like they're actually Mm. very angry and they're like, no, I don't want peace. And it's like, okay, well, probably not going to get very far but who are the people who want to work towards peace whatever so that's just that example but i mean the same with the socialists and these values because yeah we get confused and we get influenced by ideas and people think oh wait why wouldn't that be a good idea if the government just gives us everything Mm -hmm. but it's like no but Ah, how does the government work where does the government get their money from they get the money from us yep who that's something that i wanted to get onto yeah well, okay, uh, we'll get, we'll, <laughs> yeah, no, we'll set, well, yeah, I'm interested in what... Well, I should, I should finish the question that you asked about how I got here. So, uh, sorry, I've had a bit of a cold, and so excuse me sniffing, it's an incredibly bad habit, uh, but I don't have any, t- I should have had some tissues out here. Uh, I would say, so I, I went through my undergrad, uh, and I would say, it was brilliant working at Toscano's, because I think that, and I, I would encourage anyone... For, I think you should it's go. A fruit it's a yeah, it's a fruit shop. It's a green grocer. It was a, but it was great because I would work at I would start shifts at five a.m. on Saturdays. I would work five a.m. until five thirty p.m. or six p.m. at night. Um, they were long days, uh, but you know Australia. You know it, it was, it was good. It was a bit of manual labour. It what was. Did you get paid? Uh, well. It, I was there for three and a half or four years. So I started it. I was minimum wage. I was minimum wage all, all the way through. But Australia hours. has one of the highest minimum wage in the world. So I think when I started, it was about $19 an hour. Um, and then by the time I finished, it was normal rates were probably 25 Minimum wage, 19 an It's hour. unbelievable. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Australia, it was, we did have the highest minimum wage a few years ago. I'm not sure whether, I think we're still definitely top three. Which can make it very difficult for small businesses, by the way. But that's a whole, a whole separate thing. But by the time I finished, Saturday rates were thirty-two dollars an hour. Pre seven a.m. rates were uh, uh, like thirty-six dollars an hour. It was insane. And this was, you know, when I was a student. So I was able to, uh, and I was still living at home. I was able to save a lot of money by working, you know, working these shifts and. I would often take the, I would happily, t- I would either work the all day Saturday, I would work 5am till uh, till 1pm and I'd have worked eight hours and it's 1pm and I've still got the rest of the day. Although candidly, it did sort of mess around my sleeping pattern a bit. 
but I think it was brilliant because it and I was I made some great friends there. I made some great Tibetan friends there who I who I had some great conversations with. Some of which had kind of uh, fled from Tibet um, after after the Chinese had had come there. You know, one of the guys had had uh, when he was seven, he and his family had run through the jungle for three days to get to the northern India border. Um, but it was great because it was it was a bit of manual labour, and it was also uh, I started out in the um, I started out uh, on the what do they call it on the load uh, helping uh, this Tibetan guy and Peter uh, unloading all the trucks that came in and putting things away. And I think it's really I think it's better to go into a manual, especially for blokes. I think it gives you an appreciation for hard work. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm incredibly grateful for, for the experience I had at Toscano's. Um, so that sort of saw, saw me through, uh, while I finished my undergrad and then I sort of got to the end of my, and well, you know, backdrop is Melbourne goes into my, my final year of my undergrad was 2020, which of course was the first year of COVID. Uh, and the, the COVID experience in Melbourne was terrible. Uh, and what you were saying before about some people enjoying being, <laughs> enjoying being, uh, you know, having a larger state in there. I, I was incredibly, I think, I Australia has a bit of a reputation as a nanny state. I didn't quite think it was going to be that. Uh, I was pretty surprised because I think a lot of people do still have a reputation. The, they have this image in their mind of Australians, you know, being a, up yours to authority. But as it turns out, I mean... Uh, People were pretty happy to be locked down. Uh, I, I thought the the people don't really talk about it anymore. But I was completely. Uh, I found it an incredibly depressing time to be living in Melbourne, and I thought the way in which we treated our expats was atrocious, as you know, well know. And this was both. This is we had a federal liberal government, and we had uh, we had the worst state government possible, I would say, under Daniel Andrews. Um, they completely screwed up hotel quarantine and then, you know, they could have gotten the Australian Defence Force to monitor people that were... So we had a quarantine program for people in hotels. Instead, they got a private security contractor. They didn't go through proper uh, procurement processes. They basically got some of their mates. And anyway, from that, uh, without getting into the whole nitty-gritty of it, uh, I would say... That was that was my experience. All of my last year at uni was online, and then after that, it was. I felt like it was one of the worst years to graduate because uh, everything was kind of put on hold. All the kind of graduate programs, all that kind of stuff. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I had had an internship with Vicinity Centers, which is a, a property firm for if if I don't know what where what countries people are from that your listeners are but I guess if you know Westfield if you're from England Westfield was an Australian firm but they were sold in 2018 uh I believe the the English brands by Frank Lowy as though he had a crystal ball because the industry got smashed during COVID um anyhow I went into their graduate program uh uh and uh it was an interesting time to start in the corporate world because my first placement was in Emporium in Melbourne and the Melbourne CBD was absolutely dead during COVID. 
I remember being at Melbourne Central Station at 5.30 at night on a weeknight. Melbourne Central Station is one of the busiest, uh, you know, probably Melbourne Central Station, Flinders Street Station are the two busiest uh, train stations in Melbourne. And it was a ghost town. Um, and that was quite a remarkable thing. I don't think I'll ever see that again in in my lifetime. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I, I went through and I, I found it a very challenging time being in, being sort of, being sort of locked up for, for as long as we were. So for context, Australia, uh, Melbourne had the longest uh, cumulative lockdown in the Western world. It was 261 or 262 days overall over the course of from 2020 to 20, I guess, the end of 2021 or thereabouts. Um, uh, and I would say... I would say probably my experience there uh, is maybe one of the reasons why I've ended up here. I think that's probably fair to say. I think I had enjoyed working in a free market think tank, but then perhaps there was a time when I was thinking, uh, you know, perhaps I just have these kind of political and economic interests as a kind of side thing, um, but I'll just go and work in the private sector and whatever. Um, but I found that uh, and working for a big, a, a big company, uh, a lot of these ideas that were coming out of universities, I found were actually making their way into, uh, into big corporations, uh, you know, into especially a lot of sort of HR departments, into a lot of, and I thought, what the hell is going on? I thought, my, um, call me old fashioned, in, but I think fundamentally a, a firm's primary duty is to make a profit and especially a public company. You want to make the best profit possible uh, for for your shareholders. Uh, that that is the social good that a company should do. And, and the shareholder. This is a point that I have to say over and over again. The shareholders are not some evil rich people. The shareholders. No, they're mum and dad. They're, yeah, no, but they're, they're through our, especially in Australia, compulsory superannuation. Mm. Your money from your salary has to be put into a fund by law and then it will be invested in yeah. public companies yeah. like that one so genuinely it's it's important that you say that yeah that owner and i would say here i think i really started to well there's a john maynard Keynes quote uh practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler a few years back. And that's from the general theory of money. And the reason that I raise that quote, and I also often say the Pericles quote, you might not take an interest in politics, but politics will almost certainly take an interest in you. And I think um, I really learnt that lesson <laughs> in, in, uh, in the COVID experience in Melbourne, because I think... We're so fortunate to to live in a free society in which we can we can, if we want to we can take no interest at all in politics. Um, that was the first time in my life when the government really had a big kind of direct influence on the way in which I could live, uh, and I really didn't care for it that much, quite frankly. Uh, and I was, I think, uh, I think it really. And I was astounded by the lack of accountability. I mean, look, there were six anti-corruption investigations against the Andrews government, but none of them had kind of stuck. Um, uh, 
But that's not even the point. Anyway, that's why I was. That's why I was like, there's no point talking about this. No, because no. it's just a dip. You know, I had this argument with Jeanette Howard. Jeanette Howard, week, really? No, I didn't. Which know. I couldn't. John Howard's wife, very randomly at this conference we were at. Anyway, because but it's a it's a. I was set because my point is always like I was living over here to not be allowed back <clears> into <throat> my country without being detained. <clears throat> I can't. That's the only place I have citizenship in the world. And I'm not allowed in, even having recovered from COVID, having all the vaccines, everything. Yeah, I'm yeah. not allowed in without being put in detention. For that uh, makes 14 days or whatever it was. Yeah. At my own cost. That yeah. makes no sense to me. But yeah. other people disagree because they, because fear mm. and... Mm. and Hysteria. It's, but it's different. It's just, it's, it's different values. So... It is, but I think that if there had been different leadership, because I think a lot of politicians capitalised and they kind of utilised, if they had to frame things differently, like look at the way in which Sweden responded, completely different, and the OECD had a report a few months ago, their excess death rate, so Sweden, for those who don't know, kind of had a totally different approach, like people could, they more or less kept everything open. Um, but people could take any preventative measures and so on that they wanted to, which invariably they did, of course, you know, especially if you have comorbidities or you were older and so on. Their excess death rate was lower per capita than it was in Melbourne, and we had a very draconian and a completely different approach. Also, it wasn't only the expats. One of the most depressing things about the Australian situation, we had the Queensland Premier that said, Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders only. You had people that were living... You had people with family members outside of their own home state. You had people that they... Their family might have had terminal cancer and they weren't allowed to go and see them unless they quarantined for 14 days. And in some instances, you know, the family member died. It's just this bureaucratic uh, inhumanity where they couldn't make any exceptions for individual cases. That, that is but, yeah, that's, terrible. But, yeah, that's my point it, about people being happy to give mm. that much power to a government mm. to enforce these rules mm. versus the smaller government thing being responsible yeah. citizens. Yeah. We can do... And that's how it was here. People think... And that's the other thing because there was so much propaganda in Australia that it was like you thought everywhere else in the world was the same. It wasn't like that here. Yes, there were rules, but you were not... There were no curfews. You were not being... The military weren't on the street enforcing this stuff. Mm. It's like people are allowed to, you know, given responsibility to make decisions for themselves. Mm. And that's where I see the difference in people who are happy to give everything over to the government and people who are like... No, you don't trust governments under any circumstance. Even when the government agrees with you, you mm. don't want to give... You know, even when it's a government, that you, you don't want to give them all your power, ever. And that applies to speech, that applies to, you know, education. Mm. And that's why I liked... Yeah, that's why I liked John Howard's speech, which is more the liberal values. Him at the conference talking mm. about, in Australia, we... You are free to run schools. You can have Catholic Absolutely. schools. You can have Muslim it's schools. It's choice. You can have, choice. That's yeah. the key thing. And same for women. Women are yep. free to choose yep. to go to, back to work when they have children, or they're free to stay at home, or they can do it hybrid. It's giving people... The choice, the options. Yeah. But candidly, Delia, I think that if, if more people actually appreciated that, 
what kind of, for want of a better term, a lot of classical liberal values are, I think that they would support it. But I think fundamentally a lot of people, and a lot of people don't really know what a lot of... It gets difficult because you get into semantics and so on. But I, I don't know that that's true because I think there are a lot of people, and even at this conference there we are, I think there are a lot of people from all sides who don't want... Who want everyone to think the same as them. They want mm. everyone to have the same religion as them. Yeah. They want ever. They want everyone to have the same political view. For example, because f- free speech and um, classical liberal values means, yeah, where I'm allowing people to march in the street about whatever they mm. want. I'm saying, okay, that's good at uni that there are some people having Marxist values. Yes, that's though- what I say. That's what I say. That I always say. Uh, you know, God, I don't. Uh, good, good on them. God bless them. They've got their democratic right to protest, but. Oh. but it's just it's a yeah yeah but there are a lot of people from any side from the left from the right from islam from christianity from Mm -hmm. whatever suit ultra progressive to ultra conservative who want everyone to think the same as them and they want yeah that's why that's why we have to learn about this stuff because it's like hang on if whoever's in power starts executing people who don't have the right values Mm. Or, you know, whatever, executing is the extreme, but oppressing people in any way. Today they might be agreeing with me, but tomorrow that might switch and then I'm on the wrong side. So that's why we never want to get Absolutely, that much yeah. Absolutely. Okay. But we've gone for an hour 20, so... <laughs> yeah. Wait, so, get, so do you want to wrap up by saying finishing the story of how you ended up now doing this course and why you're sure, doing sure. it. Sure, and... sure. Well, I think I... Well, I came over here last year for your graduation. Uh, you'd finished your Masters of Finance at Cambridge and I came over with uh, mum and dad. Justin stayed back with little William and Georgie, our little niece and... Ne- or maybe Georgie hadn't been born at the time, I don't know. And Amy, our sister-in-law. Um, and it was an incredible breath of fresh air after having been pent up in Melbourne for so long. And I think I just thought, bloody hell, I need to I need to get over here. I think perhaps I'd always had it in the pipeline to come over. Um, but in any event, I went went back to Australia, finished up with, finished the grad program, then worked full-time for a few more months at Vicinity. I had started a graduate certificate in business, which I'm halfway through. I think I'd felt a bit, being in the business world, um, I'd felt... Uh, Coming, having come from doing more of a humanities degree, I felt a little bit of a... I felt like I should add another string to my bow and do do that. And I think it was all credit where credit's due. I think Dad put the... Because I'd, I'd really enjoyed reading um, books like On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. I, I guess I'd kind of uh, been broadly interested in... Polit- and I'd sort of immersed myself in a lot of news and a lot of... Uh, and I think Dad dad made the suggestion why don't you look at doing a, a ppe and you know so philosophy really? politics economics yeah and i hadn't really contemplated it uh because uh, it's not really it's a very english degree it's not a very australian kind of thing and, and i thought and i sort of looked into it and i thought that would be brilliant i mean that sounds that sounds right up my alley and i think i'd been kind of deterred from it because uh i think uh you and dad uh, both have brilliant mathematical brains, myself less so. I'm not a complete nuffy <laughs> when it comes to maths, but I'm certainly much more inclined towards 
uh, towards writing essays and so on. Um, I think I had, I, I was weary of the economic side of things, but I would say political economy is, it's almost like a hark back towards, so Adam Smith was sort of the, he's considered the original economist, but he was more of a moral theorist than anything else. And a lot of the original economics kind of intertwined all of those disciplines, politics, economics, and philosophy. What's happened, especially in the last kind of 50 years, is that economics has taken two different kind of pathways. So a lot of people that do pure economics, it's become more kind of quantitative. Um, one of my flatmates is doing is doing economics. He's great. He's a free marketer as well. He's read, you know, Hayek and Friedman and so on. It's incredibly refreshing. Uh, but they go down at the more mathematical pathway. But political uh, economy, and I've taken out the, uh, refer to my notes once again, prepared. Uh, so very fortunately at King's, so it's on political economy at KCL, founded in 2010, we're the only dedicated department of political economy in the UK. Our teaching and research recognises that the disciplines of politics and economics are inextricably linked. It is not just possible to properly understand political processes without exploring the economic context in which politics operates. Similarly, sound economic analysis requires an awareness of how resource allocation is conditioned by political institutions, historical context, and ethical values, and the way these have been understood by different traditions in social thought. In a world characterized by financial uncertainty, ecological insecurity, and value conflict, the links between political and economic processes are never more apparent than the need for a multifaceted appreciation of how they operate has never been greater. Sorry, I butchered the last yeah, sentence. This is, um, this is <coughs> like what politicians <coughs> need to be learning. Yeah, it's yeah. Like yeah, I think it's so. It's like... It's... Because, yeah, it's insane how many... I mean, even you heard from... You hear this stuff all the time. Like, you heard from someone well-meaning at this conference talking about you know, social fabric, but then they're talking about, like, oh, how sad that the factory, you know, everyone used to work in this factory, now they're not, and, like... Hmm. But it's, like, that's where you've got to develop the thought, oh, why aren't they? Oh, wait, because we have technological innovation. Productivity increases, yeah. Yeah. It's that Luddite But not even... Yeah, it's the Luddite thing. It's not even that. It's just, like, oh, we don't have horse and carts anymore, so the people making that stuff, we don't need it. It's not... It's, like, politicians often don't understand this bigger picture. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's pretty alarming because they are managing yeah, I, I our agree. money. I, well, I think there's they a lot of... like, 30% plus of our paycheck. Yeah, yeah. And then if they don't know how to manage that, yeah. it's like... It, it's... Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I think there's a... there's a that much wealth and you have this many homeless people on yeah. the streets and this many problems, it's like, what is going on. It's, uh, there's a good quote, because there's enough food in the world to feed everyone. So it's not a problem of scarcity, it's a problem of poor governance. Uh, and I can't, there's a, someone made that quote, but I can't remember precisely who made it. But no, I certainly wanted to, I wanted to increase my knowledge, especially of the economy. Um, I think that's incredibly important. And I think candidly, I don't know, it's maybe something that they should, they should teach financial literacy and economics as kind of core disciplines at school. I don't know how you would get it into the curriculum, um, but I think it's something something that, that would be helpful. But look, I applied for, um, I applied for uh, 
I'm very grateful to a friend who 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 he went to St Kevin's in Melbourne, uh, and he had applied for a few universities over here, but he ended up doing his masters of international relations at ANU. But initially, I was contemplating applying for a whole lot of different universities over here. But then I thought, bloody hell, there's an application fee for every time that you apply. And so I thought, I'll just go for a few of them. But I caught up with him for a coffee and he said, look, I would only apply for Oxford, Cambridge, LSE and King's College London. And I said I was cognizant of the of the former three, of course. Uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't, candidly, I hadn't really given King's that much thought. Um, but I'm so grateful for him to have said that. Um, and... Uh, because I've been absolutely loving the experience. I think the the faculty is absolutely brilliant. It's been there's been far more diversity of opinion, uh, uh, and probably greater tolerance than than I found in my undergrad. But I, not to shit all over my undergrad. I, I had two. I had some excellent professors, and I met some great people. But the the standard of academia over here has been phenomenal. But I will I will say, I came over here, as you well know very luckily uh was able to stay with my big sister for for three weeks in Fulham when I first came over I didn't find out that I'd gotten into Kings until uh about two weeks into being here and so I was kind of in limbo because the backup plan was I had my visa and everything I was just going to work if I didn't get in anywhere I was going to work full-time in London for a couple of years uh but yeah, I don't know. They must have made a mistake in the paperwork uh, for for me to have gotten in. And so, <laughs> anyway, uh, and so then that, that that was kind of good because I was able to actually figure out what I was going to be doing in the next six months of my life. And uh, very grateful for, to Edward Chandler. He gave me an internship uh, with his firm at uh, Namia Capital, uh, and that was interesting. Sort of working working in venture capital for for a few months, which was different to having worked in, in property, uh, in Melbourne, um, and was, was able to do a bit of travel in the interim as well around Western Europe. And here I am now, uh, in the motherland. (laughs) Yeah. And you'll have to teach us something about political economy another time in basic. I've got a lot more to learn before I, uh, 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 but, but yes, no, we'll have to continue. I was just going to say on that diversity of opinion thing, Uh I think, so diversity of thought always exists. It exists everywhere. Mm. Even if you're supposed to think something, everyone thinks different. Even like if you think of your favorite ice cream flavor, like people have different preferences, Mm. right? So people think differently based on their experiences. The point is, can you freely discuss it? Is Mm. it safe? It's funny because people talk about safe spaces, but it's like genuinely I'm creating a safe environment here for people to be able to share their life experience and to be able to say how they look at the world. And can we have that Hmm. in university? That's probably why I started this podcast because I found it Cambridge. It wasn't particularly safe to ask questions or to, you know, maybe have a different view. Mm. I became quickly aware of like, oh, there's like this kind of way of thinking. Yeah. And if you want to question it, even down to like food preferences, like, you know, what, like eating meat or... in yeah. a certain yeah. circle is like... <laughs> but yeah, yeah so yeah. it's like, which is... So the point is people will always think differently, but it's like, what's the kind of 
environment if the environment's making it very uncomfortable mm. for people to say I don't agree I I'm just very sensitive to that to the point that I probably just always try and disagree like in a weird advocate. yeah I just always like that because I think as soon as something turns into an echo chamber you then start having people agreeing with stuff that they don't actually agree with mm. Because it feels like you can't disagree, and that's how you end up in terrible fucking situations when, you know, what is it for evil to prevail? You just need pe- for good people to say nothing or something. Mm. That's how. I thought of that quote a lot in in COVID. Uh, bad things happen when good people say nothing. It's yeah. something like that. Yeah. But that's how if you don't have an environment where you're allowed to say, "Hang on, is it right that we're." killing these people or you know it starts less extreme than that if you don't have that then that's when the world becomes scary so i'm glad you have a place and then you realize you can respect people yeah you pick your audience as well though i would say sometimes look it does feel in a workplace well sometimes there are environments and there are people that it feels like you're treading on eggshells um so i'm i'm grateful to have (laughs) You figure it out pretty quickly who's who's willing to have an open discussion and and so on. Uh, yeah, because some people just aren't interested. No, no, true. they're not. And some people, I don't know, they're just ideological and they they some people's views are very black and white and they don't look at any kind of nuance in an area. And it's I don't know. You can't. Well, I don't know. I think I had an interesting uh, quote somewhere about. Uh, oh yes, this is Lord Jonathan Sumption, which. Well, there is an element of this. I mean, for those who believe that knowledge and truth are mere social constructs, there is no point to debate. I always think there's point in a debate, but, I mean, there's probably no convincing those kinds of people. (laughs) Because if everything's relative, then there's no such thing as reality. And it's... uh, You encounter that a bit on... Candidly, you know, I... I don't... uh, Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, there, there are. Orwell was right when he said some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals can believe, could believe them, and I think there is an element of there being more common sense in just your average person in the street or your tradie or what have you than some people that you find at university that are just completely removed from from you know. It's easy to get caught up in these kind of abstract kind of ideas and lose touch with with. Reality. Reality. But also how humans work and how incentives work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Last three questions. Mm -hmm. Unless you have anything else to add. Um, Or you can say it after the three questions. Okay. What, how do you stay grounded? Well, I try to, as I've said to you before, I try to, um, the three pillars of well-being, you know, eating healthy, uh, in as far as possible, getting enough sleep and exercising. Um, I'm probably probably letting myself down in all three faculties in that at the moment, but I, I've, I've sort of, uh, I don't know, this master's is pretty intensive, so I've been working pretty hard with it and probably have been, uh, yeah, but I would say, yeah, those three things. And also getting out into nature. I mean, it's I love living here, but it is, I'm right in the city. I'm looking forward to just getting to, uh, going out into park into a park, and I I love kind of you know being out in nature and in natural environments, and um, you know just having a walk around, and uh, probably just having just in personal relationships. I think 
um, just having a deep conversation with people and uh, I, I think that's where I feel most uh, grounded, yeah. Is there a book that's had the biggest impact on you? Um, hmm, probably, probably On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I found a lot of the book resonated with me quite heavily. I've had some interesting conversations with Senorite people about how, what they've, the faults that they found with it and so on. Uh, but I, I do really think, um, uh, just those fundamental principles that basically the, the biggest kind of takeaway is, uh, uh, and this is kind of the way in which I try to live is I don't really care what other people do. People should be free to do whatever they want to do as long as they're not bringing harm onto other people. And it can, you can get into all these debates about where it is, what is the definition of harm and so on. But basically it's a live and let live kind of attitude. Um, and, uh, well, and he's kind of, you know, a small government free market. Um, uh, so I, I would probably say that, but, uh, Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell as well was a was a brilliant book and uh, yeah, a few other ones in there as well. But uh, and then what three words describe the best version of you? Ah, uh, that's a tough one. Well, I would hope to strive towards. It's a bit of a Jesuit maxim: being welcoming, discerning, and courageous. Uh, I think. Um, uh, at my best, hopefully that's what I am. And you can kind of, you know, welcoming, being friendly to, to people and also, you know, just being lighthearted and having a joke and not taking things too seriously. Um, discerning, thinking critically, thinking, uh, I think, you know, even something that that's, you've, you've encouraged me to do that in the past when you're reading a source of something, think about the context of, and this is what you do in history as well. You think about the context of when it's written uh, what what are the motives behind the person writing it and so on? I think it's uh, it's really important to be discerning um, uh, and not to be a complete skeptic, though, mind you. I think you can fall into the trap of just being completely uh, disregarding everything because oh, everything's bullshit. Cynical, cynical, yeah, uh, and courageous. I mean, uh, well, you know, I think. I try, there's there's people that are much more courageous than me, but I try in as far as possible to to be courageous in whatever small capacity I can. I think, uh, I think maybe over, I think maybe if I could go back to my undergrad, I would stand up more for my beliefs and what I believed in, although maybe I was still developing them. But now I'm I'm much more inclined to um, speak up for uh, for 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 those kind of things and to not be as timid. And I think it's important because of what I've found is that there's a lot of people. There is definitely a silent majority of people who think stuff, but they do feel as though well, they don't want to. They don't want to. A lot of people just want to get on with their lives and they don't want to get themselves into trouble. But the problem with that is that if you don't have people speaking common sense and you don't have people who are who are voicing for a lot of the silent majority, then you can just let this silent minority with their crazy ideas completely dominate discourse. Um, 
So I think that's probably, you know, uh, if I wanted to, I could probably stay in, in property and have a very comfortable career in the private sector. But um, I, I think that people getting involved in public life and in politics and in whatever capacity, uh, I think you, you need, you need, we need conviction politicians and we need people that actually believe in something. Um, and that takes courage, I think, because... And I think also courage to learn absolutely change your mind Being based like on new information. Yeah. 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 But John Howard would has described himself as a conviction politician. And I think as well, as someone said of him, you know, people people might not have liked some people might not have liked him, but they knew where he sat. And I think there's a lot of politicians now that kind of go with whichever way the wind blows. Um, and there's probably you know, we've got some great politicians, don't get me wrong, but I think there's, I question, perhaps there's a few people that, uh, I think politics should be, it's about service, it's not about, you should be going into politics to help other people, you shouldn't be going in it to serve yourself, and I question a lot of, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of short-term managerial expediency, which is costing the long-term future of people. I think as Peter Costello puts it well as well, it's intergenerational uh, theft, a lot of what's going on with respect to... Perhaps it's a conversation for another time uh, about a lot of this uh, borrowing, uh, which is... It's going to have to be paid off. The debt that we've gotten ourselves into. Uh, Victoria's in a lot of debt. And so, as... Yeah. Yeah. You can teach us about that another time. <laughs> uh, people could probably learn learn from a, a much better source than me but uh i can give you my two cents sure <laughs> okay thanks for coming up the pleasure that was a good conversation hey guys thanks for listening to this episode if you enjoyed it feel free to share it with someone and also um a random 23 year old just messaged me on instagram and told me he found the podcast through the algorithm so it actually does help if you review the podcast and subscribe or follow and then you get to find out about future episodes as well review or rate you know what i mean anyway it would truly make my day so thank you in advance